Hello and welcome to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm your host, Antonio Barbera, and today on the show I'm very excited to talk about office culture with two great experts. Joining me is U.S. News careers reporter Rebecca Koenig. Rebecca, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. And also joining me is the co-president of the Emily Post Institute, etiquette expert, author, and co-host of the awesome etiquette podcast, Daniel Post Senning. Daniel, thanks for joining us as we tackle corporate culture. It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you. So Daniel, I'm sure you get questions about office etiquette all the time, and a lot of these topics can be ever-evolving and ever-changing. Who do you see coming to you with the most questions? Is it young people looking for jobs, starting out, or is it business leaders looking maybe to improve their soft skills? You know, the answer to every either-or question is usually both and more, and uh, it's true in this case also. It really it spans a broad spectrum. People who are just entering the workplace are really curious about how to behave and how to be their best, but people who are longtime leaders are also looking for ways to set standards and foster cultures of civility. So it, it, it really spans, spans that entire spectrum. It's an evergreen topic. And Emily Post's first book about etiquette, and written in 1922, she had a section that was about business etiquette. And that remains an important topic for us almost 100 years later. So we're going to go in chronological order with these hypotheticals and these questions, starting from the interview phase to the first few months on the job and then into some of the common day-to-day pet peeves, let's say. So let's start with interviews. I sort of view good etiquette as a way in an interview to show off your soft skills and your social skills. So the first thing I want to talk about in interviews is what to wear. Uh, A lot of people, I think, will dress for the company that they're interviewing for. That tends to be the common common decision. If it's a tech company, they're going to dress a certain way. If it's a marketing company, they're going to dress differently. But what about if you're interviewing for a tech job at a marketing company or a salesperson interviewing at a tech company or a startup? How do you navigate those type situations? I really like your perspective about situational awareness. You absolutely want to be thinking about what's appropriate for industry, but you also want to be thinking about yourself, what represents you in a way that's honest and authentic, and that can be your honest and authentic best, um, but you don't, need to, you don't need to create an impression that's not true, that's not true to who you are. So I think you want to be balancing those two things. Uh, A good idea to keep in mind, whatever position you're interviewing for, is to try to match the attire of the person that's going to be conducting the interview. Oftentimes, that's someone in the organization who's going to be about one level above you, and they often say, dress for the job that you want, not the job that you have. I think that's a good way to start to get a feel for what that is. If there's any question in your mind what that might be, you can always ask. Say, "What's what's the standard dress code in your office? What is the team that's interviewing me likely to be wearing. And that's a, that's a great way to get a sense for what's expected. Is this a, a marketing job or a tech job? I don't want to, or a little bit of both. I don't want to fall into that trap of applying the stereotype that people in tech don't dress well or are slovenly. Um, but it's, it's a good way to get a sense for what that expectation is and to even take it up just one notch from that standard expectation. In terms of timing, if you have a job interview scheduled for 2 p.m. on a given day, at what time is it polite and respectful to show up? If you're running late, how should you handle that situation? Now, if I may, this is based on a semi-personal experience where uh, there was a debate in our own office about whether somebody who was two minutes late 
to an interview whether or not they were late or not. And I had actually said I didn't consider that to be late. Two minutes to me is my watch is a minute fast and their watch is a minute slow. But I was uh, swiftly outvoted by the room and by people I've asked outside of the office. I'm, I'm certainly curious as to where you fall with this. It's one of the most uncomfortable situations to be placed in as an etiquette expert is to be asked to arbitrate or, or, or weigh in or decide a particular side on an argument like this. But in this case, I've got a rule against you. For an interview, a minute late is a minute too late. Mm -hmm. You really want to be on time. You want to hold yourself accountable, honor time commitments, honor time contracts, and particularly when you're creating that first impression. Is there a too early is, I think, a slightly harder question to answer, although not impossible. We say ideally you want to shoot for about five minutes early. If you start to get much more than 10 minutes early, the potential that you're a burden on your host or the, the team that you're meeting starts to go up. You don't want to be that person who's awkwardly waiting somewhere for a long time, either evaluating other people as they come and go. You really want to be timing yourself and shooting for that window that's five to 10 minutes early. So it sounds like 1.50 p.m. would be the appropriate time to walk out of the elevator. Listen, I'm glad to bring in uh, Judge Daniel to, <laughs> to come help us find a middle ground. Uh, so now moving on, how, what advice do you have for in terms of salary negotiation? How would you recommend applicants discuss their desired salary while in an interview? Should the interviewee bring it up first? Should they wait for the interviewer to, to open that subject up? I think a lot of people have trouble with this because maybe they're afraid if they go first, they're going to sh show their hand. But, you know, if they wait for the, uh, the interviewer to go first, then maybe they're going to lock themselves into a range that they didn't want. So do you have any guidance for that? Absolutely. This is one of the, the tougher questions about interviews in any discussion about money, you want to be candid, open, forthright, and honest. So it can feel awkward to discuss money. There's this conversation guideline when you're talking about social skills that you don't talk about money. This is one of the most personal, most um, intimate things that you can discuss so that you don't ask awkward or probing questions. You don't talk about it unless someone's really indicated that they're comfortable talking about it. But the, the particular situation that you're Describing here an interview where there's some question about salary is one of the places where it's not just appropriate, it's important. It's also one of the places where people will think that they're going to be perceived as disagreeable or overly aggressive if they bring it up. And it's not necessarily the case. Being assertive without being disagreeable is the, the, the delicate balance that you're trying to establish here. And that's the art of good etiquette. And some of the ways that you can do that are to not do it right off the bat. You don't want it to be the first thing that you talk about. You don't want to walk through the door saying, how much am I going to get paid here? I'm worth this much. Let the interview develop a little bit, get a sense and a feel for the person that you're talking to, as well as what the, the tone of that conversation is a great way to open up that conversation is to ask a question. If the salary has been something that's been part of the job posting or something that's been discussed already, you can ask a question about that. Does it include benefits? What is the vacation time? You can start to open the door to that conversation and then you can talk about what some of your hopes or expectations are. And I think that's a good way to, to get that happening. Don't do it too quick start to start from a place of curiosity 
and let the conversation develop from there. But if you do have um, a particular line or uh, a window or a range that is something that, that you know is a hard limit for you, deciding at what point you're comfortable sharing that is a choice that you get to make. You just have to be prepared to accept the consequences. If you say, I'm only going to be interested in a job that starts at this place and gives me the opportunity to advance to this place, if that's not something they're prepared to do or are willing to do, then you need to be prepared not to get the job. Let's move forward then a little bit. So you have the job, you've been there a few days, maybe a week. What boxes should a new employee check off in their first few weeks and their first few months in terms of introducing themselves, speaking up in public settings, becoming a member of the team without overstepping as the company rookie? Do you have any, any guidelines or suggestions for that? Yeah. So you mentioned at the start of this interview, thinking about uh, business soft skills as being really important, that oftentimes it's your qualification, your capacity to do a job that determines whether you're considered, whether you're ever in that seat in the first place. From that point on, really, how your, your career progresses is often determined more by those soft skills, those social skills. So you want to be thinking about your etiquette, your interactions with other people, your relationship building. That's really how I think about etiquette. I think about it as, as fundamental relationship skills, as serving you professionally. And that's both in the context of the work that you do and then also in the context of the way you build relationships at the workplace. Being aware that you're new. I think is really important. As far as the social side of things go, you really want to be a learner. You want to be a student and a bit of a detective. You want to observe and get a sense for what are the relationship dynamics in that workplace that you're entering, because you might have some sense of it ahead of time, but it's probably true that there's a lot more going on than you could ever know before you get in there and start to figure it out for yourself. So not diving off the deep end, not over committing to any particular relationship too soon, not um, exposing yourself in a way that might be awkward or difficult later on, I think is a good thing to keep in mind. It'll help you keep a balance. At the same time, you want to be engaged. You want to meet people. You want to be sure that you hit those, those minimums of social behavior and expectation that we expect from ourselves and from others. You want to introduce yourself to people. You want to say hi to people in the morning. You want to be engaged in those first encounters, those first meetings every day. And you want to say goodbye when you leave. Those little things start to say a lot about your core values and principles. We're all people of goodwill and good intent in our heart of hearts. We like to think of ourselves as high functioning and capable, but it's how we behave that really lets other people know that about us. And it's observing those little social courtesies that really makes those core values and principles explicit. So peppering your language with pleases and thank yous. Magic words are magic. I'm new here. I really appreciate your taking the time to teach me how the office computer system works. It goes a long way towards establishing you as someone who's the kind of person that someone's going to want to work with for a long time, or even just, just, um, for however long it's going to be. As far as your work goes, it's also important that you hit those bare minimums, that you honor those time contracts, that you approach your work in a way that's professional, that you're honest, that you treat people with respect, that you're considerate of other people's time and attention. 
an, a good way to sh establish a professional standard of conduct for yourself early on, a place that people get in trouble is their use of their personal cell phone. You want to hold yourself extra accountable to how you're managing personal communication during work time. It starts to create an impression about you um, either positively or negatively and can be one of those deal breakers that, that, that might cause someone to, to question your work ethic or um, your commitment to a job. And it's habitual. The way we use that device is oftentimes something that we're not thinking about. So something I would pay extra attention to my first week on the job when I don't have an established rapport or relationship with the people I'm working with. Uh, I wrote a story recently about how to build allies at work and how it's really important for your success there and at subsequent uh, companies. And I'm curious if you have practical tips for building authentic but professional bonds with your coworkers, especially when you're new. Is this taking people out to coffee? Um, is it making sure to ask them you know, personal questions that are still appropriate when you get the opportunity? What are some ways to establish friendships that still respect professional etiquette boundaries? I definitely would agree with you that engaging with people as people is so important. And that can be part of your discovery process at work. If there is a coffee run that happens every morning, offering to take your turn at it. If people do get together after work, I think that's participating in those, those experiences, those opportunities is also important. One of my favorite tips to give people in the workplace for building relationships is to not think about yourself as doing just your work very well or hitting the bare minimum requirements for a job with consistency. Those are all, all good first steps, but it's the things that you do beyond that that I think really start to cause you to stand out and set you apart. I love to challenge people to think about doing something for someone else every day. At some point in your day, check in with someone else about how their day is going or what they're having trouble with or what they what they might need some help with. And maybe your first week on the job, that's not what you're going to do. But I definitely think it's a great way to become a good ally is to offer to help other people. And I, I sort of joke, I tease audiences, I'll say, if, if thinking that one time a day checking in with a coworker about how they're doing or offering to help someone with something they're doing feels like too much, do it once a week and hold yourself accountable. Write it down. Make a little note about it. Track yourself doing it and watch how it change your work, changes your work relationships. It's a, a, a transformative exercise or thing to, to try or to tackle that um, is a challenge that I like to put in front of people. I love this idea of developing allies. The other thing that I didn't say about the first week on the job, that's another tip I like to give, is ask yourself who you can go to for help. That a lot of us like to think of ourselves as really capable. We just dig in, we try harder, we work harder, we get it done. But knowing who you can turn to and building relationships with people who can answer questions for you when you are struggling, particularly early on in any work experience, it can make overcoming hurdles much easier. Very small tips, tricks, pieces of advice can take something that would otherwise be a major obstacle and make it something that you're able to get past quite quickly. It's also a great opportunity to build relationships. So be that help to someone else, but also know who you can turn to. And if, if you ask yourself, who do I go to for help? And the answer doesn't come to your mind or several answers don't come to your mind, start to look to cultivate that kind of a relationship in your workplace because it, it'll be a real asset for you. 
Moving on to uh, relating to your boss, everyone's got one for the most part. Say your boss asks you to take on an assignment or meet a really tight deadline, and you know that you don't have the time or resources to do a high-quality job. What should you do in this case? And is it ever appropriate to say no to your boss? Um, And do you have any advice for how to do that politely and effectively? No is one of the hardest things to say to anybody. (laughs) In the social side of life, one of the most frequent questions we get asked at the Emily Post Institute is, what do I do when people don't reply to invitations that I've sent? And I I tell people the hardest thing for any host to deal with on a guest list isn't a no, it's a question mark. It's the the not knowing or the, the confusion that comes from something going unfulfilled, an expectation going unfulfilled, that's oftentimes the most difficult thing, truly. So learning how to say no is an important skill or if it's not, no, I don't want to No, it's just not possible is, is another way to talk about things. I think that the art of saying no is really where the etiquette rubber hits the road and learning how to deliver that no in a way that, that sets the boundary and establishes it as something that's, that's real and honest, but also not doing it in a way that's harsh, brutal, um, or, critical, I think is, is, is a real skill. You want to be clear, but you also want to be ready to talk about your reasons. If you're introducing a problem and sometimes saying no for someone at work is a problem, having ideas or potential solutions shows that you've given some thought to it as that you're not just reacting or responding and is a good way to show that you're invested and you're also being honest and letting someone know really, really what's possible. I want to move forward to office meetings. It's 2019. Tech is ubiquitous in the workplace. Where are we in terms of laptops and phones being used while somebody is speaking in the meeting? I think a lot of people would yell at me in terms of, well, I use my phone and my laptop to take notes or to look things up that are pertinent to this meeting topic, but then 95% of those phones and laptops are being used for other other purposes that have nothing to do with the meeting. How do we how do we manage this in 2019? So when I first started working at the Emily Post Institute, my cousin Anna was our primary presenter and I went to watch her do a talk and she had this little exercise where she stood in front of the room, she took her phone, she held it up in the air, she said, this is my phone. It's not rude, it's not polite, it's how I use it that matters. And I loved that concrete example about the tools that we use for communication. And I like to to think about it when I get a question like this. Um, These are incredible tools and they can really be an asset for us. Using your computer, your tablet, your phone to take notes or participate well in a meeting is something that you don't wanna shut yourself off from. So how do you do it well? How do you do that without giving the impression of being distracted or behaving rudely by taking your attention elsewhere away from the task at hand? I think the first thing to know is that when they do studies about cell phone use, there are two places where people have the highest expectation that people stay off their phones and keep their attention with the people they're with. One's at the dinner table and one is in meetings. So these are both places where where you want to hold yourself accountable to a slightly higher standard of formality. And you really want to focus your attention on the people that you're with and be aware that if you're doing something other than that, You really want to have set yourself up so that you're not appearing rude to the other people who are with you. 
you can do this in a couple of really simple or basic ways. If you are using your computer to take notes during a meeting, let the meeting organizer or if it's a small meeting, the other participants know what you're doing. The other thing that you can do is actually participate in the meeting, that you don't spend the entire time just buried in your device, that it's not the cell phone security blanket, but that your attention is visibly clearly with the people who are in the room. And you do that by maintaining eye contact, engaging, an alert, attentive posture and attitude, appropriate participation in the meeting are all things that you can do that will show people that you're actually there and you're actually paying attention. For meeting etiquette generally, I like to borrow from something in the social sphere again, and that's the idea of host and guest roles. And whenever you're participating in a meeting, having some idea whether you're an organizer or a host or whether you're a participant or a guest, I think is really important. You establish those roles based on whether or not you're inviting other people or not. If you've done the inviting or the organizing or the setting up of a meeting, you're probably hosting it and you're probably responsible for guiding your guests through the experience or you're partially responsible for their comfort and their experience there. One of the things you can do as a host is set expectations about electronic devices. If it's a all day or a half day meeting, asking people to keep their attention in the room, but telling them when there are going to be breaks so that they know when they've got opportunities to reconnect, check emails, be responsible to work they're responsible for, letting people know where they can go to take a call. If you really want to maintain the expectation that if you're in this room, your attention's here, letting people know it's okay to step outside where they could go to make a call is a great way to say to someone, don't do it here. <laughs> but there is a place that you can go and just excuse yourself. That's perfectly all right. We're going to be at this for a while. If you're a guest, you just check in with your host or organizer. Say, you know, I'm expecting a call from our vice president around 10 o'clock and I'm going to leave my phone on. It'll be silent alert. But if you see me notice a call come in and step out of the room, just know that's what's going on. And those little magic words that I mentioned ahead of time, excuse me, pardon me. I just want to let you know, thank you for understanding. Please keep your attention here in the room. Those are ways to deliver those messages without being demanding. If you're in a meeting and you find yourself strongly disagreeing with the ideas a colleague or a manager proposes, how do you recommend proceeding when it's your turn to comment? What's the etiquette for productively disagreeing in a meeting setting? So on a a seven-tip meeting checklist <laughs> that I often find myself teaching from. Number five has some little micro bullets, and one of them is maintain your game face, don't contradict colleagues or team members in a meeting, and having an idea that mostly being agreeable, not calling people out or embarrassing them is basic good behavior, I think is a good place to, to start from reminding yourself of those basic expectations helps you break those rules well when it's important or appropriate that you do it. So you don't do it by showing disdain or disgust with your facial expressions or your tone of voice or your language. I can't believe you really are going to waste our time with this for another session, whatever it is. That's the kind of language that you clearly and, and, and tone that you clearly want to avoid. If you need to speak up, I think that you address the issue itself as much as possible and that you uh, avoid to any, any degree that you can commenting on the person themselves or the quality or the way that they're doing the work. Try to keep the focus on the task itself. That's one way to do it. 
if you reach a real impasse, I think recognizing that you've had your say and that what's important isn't necessarily always getting acknowledgement or the outcome that you want, but that you've said your piece and said it well, that oftentimes navigating conflict when it comes up involves understanding their other perspectives and other people who may think about things differently than you do. If there's criticism or feedback that really needs to go further, there's usually an opportunity to pick that up, to do it in a way, maybe later on, that's, that's less um, awkward for the people involved. You can take a discussion, have it in a private way, or find someone who has the authority or the standing to address it. And oftentimes that's, that's the bottom line place that you need to find. And even knowing what those bottom lines are ahead of time can help avoid the emotional issues that sometimes come with conflict. If you know, well, I can always go talk to so-and-so later and they can really get this sorted out, or we can have this discussion later and I can put my foot down, but I don't need to do it now in front of these other people can help avoid things escalating in a way that's uncomfortable. That makes sense. What are some common etiquette mistakes people make during business meals? Um, these can be job interview lunches, coworker happy hours, the infamous holiday party, a team breakfast. Um, maybe there are some top th- top things people should avoid to make sure they are not uh, behaving unprofessionally when food is involved or drink, I suppose. Any good etiquette discussion eventually comes around to dining. <laughs> um, it's my uncle Peter likes to say that eating is inherently a gross activity, and it's un- also maybe fortunately, maybe unfortunately, one of the most important social rituals that we participate in. They call it the pecking order, and that has to do with who gets their food first. <laughs> it's um. It's really important how you navigate those business social situations, those business meals. The big thing you want to remember is not to make a mess. The most important <laughs> dining rule is the dining rule that you learn first. Uh, don't chew with your mouth open. Don't talk with your mouth full. The adult version is if I don't hear you chewing, it's a bonus points situation. People will forgive you picking up your fork with the wrong hand, people will forgive you leaving your napkin on your chair instead of on the left side of your plate if you're returning to the table. But if you really gross out the people that you're with, if you make a mess of yourself and the table, that's the that's the deal breaker that I think is the easy short answer. If you're talking about mix and mingle events, don't leave a trail of detritus behind you. Just because you're not at the table doesn't mean dining rules don't apply. Um, remember those core basics and you're probably going to be okay. And then keep your attention on the people that you're with, participate, engage the people around you, be pleasant, be involved in the meal, and you're probably going to be okay. Thanks. Um, moving on from mealtime, I think a lot of people encounter the situation where a chatty coworker frequently prevents you from getting your work done. And we've already established it's important to be friendly and have relationships but how can you best indicate that sometimes you need to focus and would prefer that this um, chatty person leave you alone for now to make sure you can meet your deadlines? I call it the knock before entering rule. And it, it's the my little reminder that human attention is a gift. The gift of anyone's attention is something you want to 
cherish and take seriously. Not everybody's going to treat you with that same respect. Not everybody's going to behave, particularly in open office environments, as if you had an office with a door where they would be expected to knock and ask for your attention before they walked up to you and assumed that it was going to be given. Setting those boundaries that you were kind of alluding to when you talked about the ability to say no to a boss is important with coworkers as well. This is where I go back to core fundamental etiquette. And I say those magic words really are magic. You can interrupt someone if you say, pardon me, I'm, I'd love to hear more about X, Y, or Z, but I've got to get this done. I need to keep my focus here so that I'm able to get this finished by lunch or so that I'm able to, to really say I put my time in this morning. Those are reasonable things to say to a coworker and getting comfortable saying those things is an important part of being a good coworker. Those magic words are magic. You can deliver that same message in a way that someone can hear it and can feel respected. You can also deliver it in a way that's hurtful. And I think finding that balance is oftentimes about how you say what you say. And those magic words are magic. The the magic, it doesn't just come from the words. It comes from you. It comes from the sincerity with which you deliver it. But it's, it's also important to use those core skills. All right. Now I want to go through a couple of quick hitters here in terms of the office pet peeves. I think this is some of the more fun topics that people like to gossip about or vent about once they get home. And we're going to get some, some clarity today can on I, the show. Can I guess ahead of time, the, the kitchen sink the, or the office, the office kitchen, the person who's talking too loud on the phone. Um, yes. Yeah, see, you you have, you have my notes in front of you. let we got to get to the cubicle first and foremost, personal calls that get too personal at the cubicle. Yes. No, never. Sometimes. <laughs> Please never, but it's going to happen. If it's happening to you, respecting someone else's privacy, someone's phone rang, their kid had just been suspended, should I say something about it? No. Uh, Sometimes discretion is the better part of valor. It's okay to not say something. If you happen to pick up something very personal about a coworker that you shouldn't know, if you're the person who's receiving that call or making that call, reminding yourself that there is a, a public private line that's worth maintaining, and asking coworkers to keep your secrets or hold confidence for you puts them in a difficult situation. So no, don't don't do that. Food, bringing your hard-boiled eggs to your desk, or should they even in the microwave? Should we even bring these smelly foods into the kitchen microwave at all? What are your thoughts on on food and the volatility that they can provide? Everyone has a different food that they think is smelly. For some people, it's bananas. For some people, it's eggs and Everybody else's smelly foods always surprise the person who's never heard that one before. Um, it's why it's great to keep food that's not really simple snack food in an office kitchen, if at all possible. Um, I would also say that any kind of personal hygiene or grooming should be done in private at your desk so or, or in, in a restroom. So your, your desk is a workplace, and particularly if you're sharing that workspace with others, recognizing that everybody's lines on these things are a little bit different and then really holding yourself accountable to a a business standard and taking eating to a kitchen or space where it's appropriate and grooming to a restroom, I think will make everyone's lives easier. Now it's late winter peak flu season. This is another one we have to get out of the way. The etiquette on staying home from work when you're sick, it seems cut and dry 
and yet I think it's a challenge for sick workers to stay home. I mean, it's, it's 2019, working remotely is as easy as it has ever been. Why is this still such a challenge? And maybe how can someone be nudged to maybe stay at home if they are sick? It's so hard to tell someone they're too sick to be there. <laughs> it really is, particularly if it's borderline. And, and, and it's hard to say. Some people think, well, oh, once you're showing the symptoms, you're no longer contagious. It's that period of time before you're showing those symptoms that you're most contagious. This is one where I like to remind people that some of the best things that you can do are to protect yourself, particularly during, during flu season. Observe those traditional etiquettes. When you're around other people, don't touch your face with your hands. Keep your own fingers out of your mouth, nose, eyes, ears. Or back to, uh, back to daycare uh, with other people. level. And then wash your hands before you go eat. Not just because it's polite to other people that you show up to the table clean, but because it protects you. You don't know whether someone else washed their hands after they sneezed, whether you saw them do it or not. So take care with yourself. If you need to, it's okay to stand back a little bit from someone who's sick, protect yourself. Calling someone out is trickier. How you ask someone to take better care of themselves or stay home is something you really want to approach with a great deal of caution. If you've got a good relationship, most people would rather hear about something really awkward or difficult from a coworker than from a boss, manager, or HR. So having that discussion privately, discreetly, a great way to prime someone for any difficult discussion is to ask permission. You know, there's something a little awkward I wanted to talk to you about. Do you have a minute? Yeah, sure. What is it? You've now got permission to say almost anything. <laughs> they, they call it priming. And it's a great way to broach a difficult topic or conversation with someone. Ask permission to have it if you're going to go there and then be direct, be clear. Also be explicit about your care for the person and others. You know, I really care about you. If the shoe were on the other foot, I'd hope someone, you would say this to me. I'm a little concerned that you might be contagious or I've noticed you coughing a lot. Are you feeling well? You know, I, I bet we could tackle this and keep you updated via email if anything comes up. That's a, a soft version of that conversation that you might be able to get away with, but approach it with some care. And now two quick hitters in terms of emails. I think we could have a whole episode on email etiquette at work, but I want to yes. tackle a few of the most common issues. And the first is the accidental reply all fiasco. I have that in quotes. I think most of us have done it at least once. Uh, what is your advice for how to handle it with grace, both from the sender perspective and even from the recipient? If you're receiving it, mistakes happen. Try not to be too judgmental about others. We're all going to participate in rude behavior at some point. We're all going to be that one on our cell phone when we shouldn't be. And we're all going to send that email that we regret at some point later on, whether it's a misspelling or whether it's a gripe or a grievance that really shouldn't have ever been aired. As far as not making that mistake, it's hard to say to someone, don't ever make a mistake, but take care. Take care with how you use email. Know how reply and reply all work. Know that reply all should only be used when you really mean to communicate what you're communicating to everyone. Usually invitations where you're replying just to a host are the classic examples where you don't need to reply all to everybody. Understand how the carbon copy and the blind carbon copy work. Don't be deceitful. Don't CC someone's boss or BCC someone's boss as a way to hold them accountable to work. Ask yourself, would I be comfortable explaining to everyone involved why I used the blind carbon copy if they were to ask about it? And if you can't 
tell anybody the reason why you would be using it, don't use it to begin with. It's, it's a weapon of mass destruction, so I think, <laughs> I think that's good advice. And then in terms of ending an email conversation, um, a lot of times people will send back a thanks or no thank you or your welcome note. Um, can you tell us uh, what is the right way to end these conversations? Should we be polite and acknowledge them with one of those magic words you mentioned? Um, is email um, a communication device that begs for brevity and we should just not clutter up everyone's inboxes with some of those magic words? What do you think? I think email thanks are appropriate for email favors. Um, and thanks stays powerful when we mean it. I think that the most effective thing that you do, some of the best advice that I give about email communication is use salutations and closings. So begin emails, particularly the start of email chains, by acknowledging someone's humanity. Put a salutation at the top. Hello, so-and-so. Hi, so-and-so, just someone's name, even just someone's initials that you communicate with all the time, comma, return, return. It's a very small bar to clear to acknowledge someone's humanity and personhood before you start the communication. It turns what can otherwise, something that could otherwise sound demanding into something that's a, a communication. It also provides a point of entry into a conversation in the same way a closing provides a point of exit. So a regards best regards, all the best, best are all great ways to close an email. And oftentimes that's enough. And then you sign your name. I say avoid making thanks perfunctory. Don't make it your closing itself. Don't make it thanks, comma, my name. That actually can start to sound demanding or assumptive if you're not actually thanking someone for something. So be careful with how you use it. Include a thanks that you mean in the body of an email. If something's really concluded and you mean thank you, it's a great way to finish a conversation, but it's not necessary every time. All right. As we finish up, Daniel, what are some of the most common office etiquette faux pas that you see that need to be cleared up here and now? The number one complaint that people have about coworkers is people talking too loudly on their phones. So really hold yourself accountable to how you use that personal device at the office, and you're going to be avoiding the number one mistake that people make in the workplace. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, hopefully we can have you come on again soon to offer up more wisdom into the world of office etiquette. You're most welcome. It was my pleasure being here. And make sure to check out Daniel's podcast, Awesome Etiquette, for more great etiquette advice related to weddings, parties, holidays with family, you name it. And Becky, thank you as always for coming on. See you on the next Careers episode. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. For more careers-related advice, please go to money.usnews.com to read up on how to find a great job, how to nail the interview process, how to negotiate your salary, and even how to navigate office culture. If you have questions about jobs, career advice, other burning etiquette questions, please email us at wealthofknowledge@usnews.com and we'll review some of them on our next careers episode. And please like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast so that we can help get more careers-related advice to as many people as we can. As always, thanks for listening to Wealth of Knowledge. I'm Antonio Barbera. See you next week.